Are you, are you going to space, Wilson? Is that where you're going? Yes, this uh, hopefully is my le- next um, phase of discovery to leave this planet a little bit to, to examine home is meaningless without journey. And I really want to see outside home perspective and what is the meaning of Earth for us when we leave the Earth. Greetings, everyone. You're listening to Transnatural Perspectives. This is the podcast where we put nature in focus while bringing perspectives on society and culture across environments and landscapes, helping you integrate sustainable action into your life wherever you may be and in whatever you do. I'm your host, Josh Bennett, back again live here in Oslo, Norway, and I hope that you all are doing well wherever you may be listening. So far, it looks like we have listeners in 48 countries. This is super exciting as we are picking up new listeners every episode as we make this journey together across cultures. Now, today on the show, we've got polar explorer and researcher Wilson Yin Chung. But first, some show announcements. So everybody, we just passed our 10th episode sailing right here into number 11, and I think it's gonna be the last one of the year which is pretty cool since the show just started back in September and it's been released almost weekly. I just want to say thanks to everyone for all of you who have given me feedback so far since we got started. And I'm really happy to hear that many listeners have found this podcast beneficial. And I think it's so awesome that even some of you tell me that you're using this podcast in some of your classrooms. That's just amazing and an honor to be there with you in the classroom. Really, this is the kind of news that just keeps me going. It keeps the show going. It keeps me motivated to know that it's having an impact and people are finding it entertaining and finding it informative. And I intend to go full steam ahead, releasing on a slightly less regimented schedule than before. As you may have noticed this month, it's been a little slower, but I'd like to try to keep it at least, you know, two or more episodes a month for the time being. And maybe we'll ramp it up in the future. I'm leaving some more time for flexibility just because I'm working on a lot of writing and expanding the show, coming up with ideas and other stuff behind the scenes, let's say. More to be announced later. Speaking of keeping the show going, you know, I like to think of this show as a group project between me and you and all the guests that take the time and share their thoughts with us here on the microphone. So if you find this show to be a value and you'd like to keep it going in a sustainable way, please make sure that you subscribe and share this podcast wherever you can with whomever you can. Give it a thumbs up wherever you can. Hit me up with an email. Let me know of any ideas that you have for the show or things you want to hear more on the show or less on the show or a special guest or maybe you want to be a guest or any kind of interesting funding opportunities that might be able to help the show grow. And also please consider doing donating on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash transnaturalpod. For as little as $3 a month, you can support the show on a monthly basis. And you can also make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash internationalsuper. And to be honest, at the moment, this is a real shoestring show. I don't have any fancy gift packages to send you as a subscriber. I just wholeheartedly appreciate that you enjoy the show and you want to support it in any way that you can. Although, if you want, you can always drop me your address and i'd love to send you a postcard most importantly everybody thank you so much for listening sharing and enjoying the show
Speaking of the show, my guest today is Wilson Yun Chung. Wilson is founder and director of the Polar Research and Expedition Consultancy, as well as he is a fellow of the Royal Geographic Society. He's a member of the Explorers Club, and he's also on the Scientific Committee on the Antarctic Research, Humanities, and Social Sciences Expert Group. He's also a graduate of the TEOS program. You all have heard me talk about that before, the Transcultural European Outdoor Studies Program, where we studied together, actually. And you know you've heard a lot about this program on the show, so I will save you the drama. Anyways, Wilson is a true renaissance person with a detailed professional skill set that covers just about anything one could imagine in the air, on the land, ice, or below the sea. He's guided everywhere you can imagine in the Arctic and polar regions around the world. It's quite opposite of his native Hong Kong, to be honest. And in today's conversation, we're going to discuss his early nature experiences when growing up in Hong Kong, his experience polar guiding, his cross-cultural research in tourism and climate change and the role of citizen science and tourism, and even his plans to travel to space. That's right, I said space, and a whole lot more. I originally thought I would end this show for the year at 10 episodes, but Wilson takes us on such an epic journey through this conversation that I thought that this would be a fantastic way to close the year. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening, and please stick around after the conversation for some reflections on the other side. Enjoy and prepare for liftoff. Three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Lift 32 minutes past the hour. Wilson, are you with us? Yes, for sure. Awesome. Yes, I work in Bremenhaven in Arve. It's a German mm-hmm. polar institute, mainly focused on all the research, for example, sea ice, glacier, or atmosphere in polar region, for example, Antarctica and Arctic region. Okay. And what what are you working on exactly? Uh, yeah. what, what's your research on exactly? Actually, there's a two, bo- two projects I'm working on. First of all, it's my own master project. It's using the drone. It means the, the machine that can fly around to mapping the ice cap in Svalbard in the high Arctic region in order okay. to, to find out that because under this ice cap is called Fosfonda, and they mm-hmm. are active mining company to, to making the coal mine, but there's a lot of funding because of the ice cap melting. So using this kind of high-tech, low-cost, efficient method to map the glacier, and we can know the hydrological flow and investigate where is the way or how the water, the melt water from the glacier to go inside the mine. So this is a little bit application for, for the climate change that the glacier keep melting and at the same time to impact the human activity in, in Svalbard. And the uh, sec- second project is about mosaics. Did you heard about this before? No, what is that? Okay. Um, actually, it is the same as Nelson, the explorer, Nelson from Norway, and they're using the farm to drip all the way to the North Pole, although they're not successful in uh, 100 years ago. And that's why this year, actually two years ago, in Germany with another another institute in all of the world, the Polar Institute, and they, they're using the polar stand and other icebreaker to drift all the way to North Pole in order to collect all the data in winter time in North Pole, which is a first humankind history to do this as well. And my job is using some kind of software 
to to in, to, to investigate and interpret the eye the sea eye drift by the aeration picture uh, from helicopter from the drone from the airplane. I'm curious, how did you get into this scientific aspect of like outdoors and exploration? Yes, actually, during my study in Teos, and uh, we studied together, we were studied together before. I work in as a polar guy in both polar region, and that's why I get in touch with the the door, I can say, the door of the polar science, because I always uh, work with lots of polar scientists in polar region. For example, I have been South Pole three times, and then work in the raw sea. Ice shelf and the Weddell Sea ice shelf with some um, scientists to investigate the amber penguin or sea ice melting, as well as the ice ice iceberg carving as well. So I have a, a bunch of lab work with sort uh, with the polar region scientists, scientists, and this this made me inspire to give me some inspiration that I need to jump to another level because you work in the polar tourists for a long time sometimes you feel quite tiring because you, you work in a customer service and moreover that you you can say that sometimes in critical perspective tourists is not really contribute to discovery of the frontier so that's why I dedicate myself to change from social science perspective to the science perspective that to to explore our unknown more yeah. So yeah. So it sounds like you kind of started uh, a bit, you know, yeah, from the social science perspective, and also just from purely from the kind of the tourism industry perspective, and then kind of switched over to science. Are, are you kind of combining everything now? Yeah, you can say like this because uh, there's a new trend to to do this kind of research. We combine social science data into science perspective, so that we have an all dimensional data to analyze what is happening and how our future will be happening as well. Wow. So, yeah. So when did you get started with doing these tours down in the North Pole? You said you've been down or you said you've been to the South Pole three times, right? And you've also been up into the North Pole, have you? Yes, yes. Affirmed. Yeah. I think the first year we, we have here is 2011 mm-hmm. and I already get a position in polar region to work in the cruising ship first. And then after two years, I get another opportunity to work in the deep field of Antarctica, which means that uh, it's inside Antarctica because uh, only 2% of tourists, no, sorry, only 98% of tourists explore 2% of Antarctica. In this case, it means Antarctica Peninsula. So the rest, 98% of Antarctica is so difficult to explore because uh, the competitive very complicated uh, logistic, uh, as well as uh, there's limited of infrastructure inside Antarctica as well. So I'm very uh, glad that to have opportunity to work inside Antarctica. So, yeah. When you were going to, how, like, how how did you get to Antarctica? How did how did that happen in the first place? How did you end up finding a job in Antarctica? Yeah, actually, in 2007, I have been. Antarctica already, because at that time I'm still a student in Hong Kong, and some company, for example, some British company and moreover the, the big brand, want to, to sponsor some Hong Kong student to go to Antarctica to study about the, the ecosystem and mm. changing in the climate in the Antarctica Peninsula. 
so I get this uh, sponsorship to go to Antarctica. So, so I have my my first time relationship with Antarctica. That's why I really want, I really longing back, uh, longing to go back to Antarctica once I have an opportunity. And once I work in uh, Tios, and I met some uh, French expedition company in Europe, and at that time mm-hmm. there's a substantial substantial growth of Chinese tourists to go to polar region. That's why they need some expedition expedition guide that can speak Chinese Mandarin in this case, as well as English as well. So that's why they give me an opportunity immediately because uh, they need they really need some people can can dis discover what they're talking about. I mean the Chinese perspective, uh, Chinese tourists. That's why I get uh, this opportunity like this. Yeah. So it sounds like. It sounds like language has been like a big part of like grasping different opportunities because yeah. Do you? I, I can add some point in here is because yes. in Antarctica language is really is a first um, um advantage, but second advantage is uh, about the skill. If you have more skill in in the isolated area or for in this case, I mean polar region, especially in South Pole or in in the deep field of Antarctica, which means that you have a more opportunity to to get the position inside. Because, because yeah, there's a very limited of manpower, and they cannot send everybody inside to Antarctica as well. So in this case, if you have more skill, for example, in my case, I have a mountaineering skill, some aeration skill as well. That that will ensure or to 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 increase your chance to work in the, in the polar region actually. Okay, so I want to I want to get back to Antarctica in a second, but I would I'm kind of interested just to go shift gears for a moment and go a little bit into your history and your upbringing because I think many people would be curious to know how 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 does somebody from Hong Kong end up in Antarctica and all over the place so especially cuz Hong Kong is quite a small place and I'm not so familiar with the environment there I remember you telling me a little bit about it when we met one time but I mean what was your what was your upbringing like and maybe some of your nature experiences when you were growing up in Hong Kong? Yes, actually, I grew, I born uh, during the British colony period. At that mm-hmm. time, UK government preserved about 80% of the countryside in Hong Kong as a preserve, and the rest is an urban area. And nowadays, Hong Kong have uh, 8 million people. At that time, I think it's 7 million people. So it means that a lot of dense uh, population just squeeze inside 20% of the of the territory and the rest is the countryside, which is amazing because I still remember when I'm when I'm I'm a student in Hong Kong, I always spend my time to go see kayaking, to do some hiking, mountaineering, rock climbing, in, in Hong Kong countryside, which built up my my deep connection to to the to the landscape and as well as to, to the nature relationship as well, which which we which really changed my life to 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 us to the nature based lifestyle to be honest so when you when you grew up in hong kong did you live in the city like in the urban area no actually i live in the very countryside because only the not okay it's neither you're very extremely rich or or neither you're very extremely poor you live in the countryside Mm-hmm. Only for the middle class or some people have a financial subsidies from government, you can live in the in the uh, apartment or or house in the urban city urban setting. 
And the, the rest of the people, they have to live in the countryside that is uh, it's quite a little bit isolated if you don't have your car or vehicle, something like this. So because of my background is a little bit disadvantaged, I can say my father and mother didn't have that much uh, income. That's why we live in the countryside that to, to, to save our life, I can say. Okay. And what what is like where you lived and where you grew up? I mean, how what was the landscape like? It's hilly and uh, subtropical. It's mean that a little bit subtropical. It's mean a little bit not forest, but a lot of tree with river, a lot of insect as well. Especially Hong Kong is a peninsula, uh, so that we're surrounded by ocean. Yeah, so it's it's quite if you like outdoor. Especially in autumn or winter time, it's not too hot. It's a paradise for, for outdoor lover, actually. Man, that sounds amazing. I really got to get down there. I, I, yeah, I mean, and how did you end up going? I mean, when did your fascination with mountaineering and all that come about? Did that start in Hong Kong? Or? Yes, during the British colony period time, period of time. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of subsidies for students to learn different kinds of sport. In this case, I take advantage from the government funding to learn about rock climbing, as well as some uh, levitation skill from Boy Scout as well. So, oh, wow. which build up my foundation of, of exploration skill actually. Oh, wow. Okay. So they had the. They, it, it all totally makes sense now because yeah, because that's right. At that time, it was still being under the colonial period of the British yes. Empire. Yes. Yeah, that's that's wild. Yeah, I was a Boy Scout too, actually, but in the United States. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, that's that's pretty much how I got into it myself. So and then and then you went to school and and what did you study when you went to university? Actually, from my high school to university, I, how to say my public exam is not quite good. Actually, mm-hmm. I say it's fail, actually. That's why I cannot go uh, enter university directly. But on and off, I found a position in a bachelor degree in uh, physical education and mm-hmm. management in, at a Hong Kong Baptist University. So my, my first degree is about physical education and the recreation management, actually. It's not totally not related. But, but sort of related as well because there's elements called outdoor recreation. Mm-hmm. So, but in Hong Kong, it's a little bit more commercial. It means that how to manage the campsite, how to manage the pool or summer camp like this. But, but still have a portion that to touch about outdoor using or the landscape management, uh, something like this, which, which still preserve my, my passion about outdoor or nature relationship. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. Yeah, and it's kind of like general recreation management. Yeah, we had actually the same degree at the school I went to. I studied in there for when I did my bachelor's degree. And so in, in that, it sounds like, is that when you got this offer to go to Antarctica? Yeah, yeah. When I go to the first year of at the university, I have a chance to find a house, uh, a call to, mm-hmm. to, to, how to say there's some equip- equipment mm-hmm. uh, for the Hong Kong student to represent Asian to go to Antarctica to study about the, the ecosystem over there. That's why I remember they, they need to select only three people but from 2,000 applicants. And I'm only the one of the third three people they selected. 
Wow. Okay. And were you, so did, did you have an interest to go to like polar regions beforehand or was this just like a random occurrence? No, because uh, as I said before, my family didn't have that much financial support mm-hmm. in my childhood. For example, in Hong Kong, a lot of people will, will spend a lot of time, even they, have, they will spend a lot of resources for the for, for their son or their, their daughter to go to drawing class, learning piano, Mm-hmm. Because uh, the, the education system in Hong Kong is quite competitive, so mm-hmm. to to add more value for for your kids in order to enter the university level. But for me, since I don't have money, so my my father and mother always send me to the public uh, library, which is mm-hmm. uh, fantastic because I, I read others a lot of book about, for for example, Antarctica, about the world, about everything, which is free, and then uh, yeah. this build up my my dream. My my first dream is really want to travel to Antarctica to see how is it look like and uh, yeah and to to explore something that is far away from Hong Kong actually at that time. So, mm. so I, when I see this opportunity, that's why I thought this is a good chance for me to really first time to take the brain actually because I never take the brain even I'm in university. Mm-hmm. To, to support my dream, to make my dream come true. You know, of course, we talk about it a lot on the show and we've talked about it because we've studied it. You know, in Norway, for example, there's this whole culture of Fredusliv and, you know, and it's different, you know, outdoor recreation in, you know, the UK or in, in the United States or Australia. But I mean, what do you, f- do you feel like your experience was really informed by this fact that, you know, you come from kind of like more middle-class family that wasn't investing so much in you doing these kind of like intense studies, but you were, you know, just playing outside and going to the library and stuff like that, rather than like doing all this other stuff that you said some of the richer families would participate in. Do you feel like you had kind of a special experience with nature in Hong Kong? Yes, first of all, because uh, to be honest, uh, you're quite surprised that the statistics will tell you that, you know, half of the population in Hong Kong, they don't know how to swim. Um, wow! And of people, they don't know how to camp. They never go to camp. So you, you can see that there's quite disconnected to the nature, even though we have eighty percent of the countryside. So wow! Yeah, so it's quite the shock data for 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 for, for me at least. Uh, but in this case, it means that and this is quite say idiot as 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 me always spend my time in outdoor. And then we don't, I mean, I don't pay attention to, to my study as well when I'm in high school. That's why a lot of people, even uh, my teacher, my classmates say that you're, you're the failures in Hong Kong and you not go to university. It's difficult to sustain your life in the future if you don't do what they did, more skill to survive in the capitalist uh, society. But somehow I, I work out now I work very good, but but in Hong Kong it's quite difficult to be honest because the cultural perspective that outdoor is, is if you work as an outdoor instructor, outdoor recreation manager, it means it's a little bit a little bit low cost job actually. And moreover, that mm. I can say same as an American, mm-hmm. um, outdoor just like I, I always say is a modernization or disillusionization. It means that people you go to outdoor. And then you suppose you learn how to communication, you learn the leadership skill, or uh, you know how to work as a team like this, as a tool, as a backdrop. 
and one day, two day, you learn all all the stuff in outdoor setting, which is is basically is a wrong concept, because mm. I believe that we live in Hong Kong that the landscape will cultivate or will shape your personality, and moreover that you have a connection with the landscape that will change your 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 mindset or perspective to see physical world in time in space perspective. As I said before, because there's a quite heavy subsidized program by mm-hmm. British Hong Kong government for young generation to learn more about this outdoor skill. So I did a lot of mountaineering, hiking, trekking, okay. even expedition planning to go to Tibet. Yeah, because the cost is quite cheap, to be honest, compared to learning aircraft uh, or learning the piano or something. <laughs> Yeah, it actually it actually sounds like maybe 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 you had the right idea because if it's not that popular to do these things in Hong Kong, then it seems like there's you know pretty in, like more inexpensive and op- more opportunities to go do that kind of stuff. So it sounds like it actually worked out quite well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but you need to to leave Hong Kong to develop otherwise because Hong Kong is a financial center. Mm. Although we we do have a lot of countryside still. But the overpopulation, especially now the political situation, the countryside is shrinking. It means it's getting less and less and become more urbanized. Mm-hmm. So, so, I mean, if I don't, I still in, live in Hong Kong, it's, it's, it's difficult to develop outdoor industry in, 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 in Hong Kong, actually. Yeah, and like and like you said, they have the uh, the general conception, and probably generally what the general population is attracted to is these kind of McDonaldized activities. Uh, I'm imagining uh, maybe leaving the city for a day and going to do some kind of organized activity and coming yeah. back. Is it a lot of stuff like that? Yeah, it's just like this. Yes, because a lot of school they do have some kind of credit for for outdoor uh, pursuit, something like this. They do have credit mm. for this. But usually just a one day, two days, something like this. It's not really long term. You, you had these dreams of going to Antarctica and the polar regions, and then it finally happened. And how, so how was it, you know, back then? When, when was this that you first went to Antarctica? It's in uh, 2011. How many people end up in Antarctica? Um, percent of the- okay, usually each year is about 14,000 14, okay. people uh, as a uh, visitor to Antarctica. And about ninety percent, uh, sorry, yeah, about ninety percent that you go to Antarctica Peninsula, which means mm. it's only two percent of Antarctica they visited. Wow! And what what were your first impressions of this place? Because from from reading through some of your stuff, it, it seems like a homeland to you now. So, but how how was it when you first went there? For me, uh, it's just like paradise. I can say another planet. You can say as well because white landscape. Just only pure. I mean, even even you don't hear anything, especially if there's no wind, no people around you, and no penguin around you. It's it's quiet and uh, very pure. Preserve everything. Yeah, although you can say it's a uh, quite emptiness as well because it's nothing. But uh, by this emptiness, I can see a lot of things in a uh, more than human world actually. Hmm. Okay. So. I mean, what, what can what do you what do you can you ex- expand on that a little bit? Like, what kind of uh, more than human interactions are standing out in yeah. your mind? Yeah, this a bit about my my writing as well, my st- study as well. I can bring up more about what is the value of Antarctica as well. 
in this case. Because we only discover Antarctica only 100 years only. So, so the first humankind to reach the South Pole is uh, Amundsen from Norway. Mm. 19-1-9-1-1 years. Mm. On December 14th. Actually, it's uh, just a few days before we work record, actually. Wow. Yeah. So, so, so we don't really discover that, that, that long period of time. And we still have a lot of unknown of Antarctica. Which means that every time some of the tourists, when they go to Antarctica, even me, we, we, we carry some kind of ex- explorer or discoverer or frontier uh, concept or, or, or motivation to go to Antarctica. Because we're just like the first pioneer to, to visiting Antarctica as well. We, we're reaching some kind of place that we always imagine about this, but at the same time that we, we don't know that much. Yeah. But especially from Asia perspective, Antarctica is quite far away from, from Western perspective because in, term, in terms of the, the social science um, study, discover, discover explorer from, from Asia as well, in the, in the history of Antarctica exploration, they don't have any ancient explorer as well. Wow. So, so you can see that that's why it's easy to ex- explain why Asians feel Antarctica is quite disconnected compared to Western people, that West, uh, Western people have more connection to Antarctica. So this first one, Antarctica is always recall or evolve exploration spirit because uh, as a human, we always need to explore in order to keep our, our species sustained at the same time that to ensure you have a new resources before you, you expel or, or spoil all the resources you have. So Antarctica give, give us this kind of uh, value. And second value is Antarctica is a, wild, uh, is a wilderness place. It means that empty, untouched, or, or preserve the pure of the nature. And this, this really is my first impression that you didn't see any human activity. You didn't feel any human culture as well, although there's some kind of exploration, explorer, leftover, or some, some kind of hut over there, but at the same time, mm-hmm. like, you don't you don't like just like Hong Kong, just like some continent that have a lot of human footprint, which which we call what which always we call my my question is if there's no human, how the nature will act on without us, which which mm-hmm. we you will find the answer in Antarctica very easy because Antarctica is a, is a wilderness place. But in this part, I can show some statistics as well, because a different culture, different kind of interpretation of, of a wilderness value as well. Mm-hmm. For example, in Western, they always uh, think that it's a little bit preserved, untouched area, and moreover, there's a, there's a rich of biodiversity landscape. I can say, but for the Western, uh, for the Eastern perspective, they do share similar. But they add on some value is they think wilderness play is a witch of resources. And uh, the human have to manage this kind of resources as well. That's why we can explain that, you know, in, in Antarctica, we propose to become a fishing industry zone. It means that uh, we don't want Antarctica Southern Ocean to become uh, for, for the fishing ground. But uh, Russian and Antarctica and China, they, they ban this kind of regulation. So this is quite easy to, to explain because of the wilderness concept as well. Because they have different kind of uh, interpretation of Antarctica. 
which which bring my study about different culture of interpretation of Antarctica as well. Okay, the first point is actually in in Antarctica is international space for humankind actually, because、uh, in Antarctica they don't have border, and everybody own it, and moreover there's no currency,、uh, there's less politics, and there's no central government in Antarctica as well. So once interesting, yeah. So once you land in Antarctica, basically you don't need to spend any money, and、uh, which make you more free, I can say. Over that, I mean, less politics and there's no nationality differences because、uh, we all the same in Antarctica. So、mm-hmm. this this really really entitled or enlightened me that maybe it's a it's a future model for for our humankind to develop in this perspective in this、uh, direction actually. So so this key、mm-hmm. value that、um, I can explain that this is my first impression when I go to Antarctica. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is a very variable value, value for for us to to keep on to preserve as well. Wow, that is super interesting. I mean, so to me, it's, it sounds like it's almost. Would you say it's almost like a cultureless place? Yes, because I can say that in these twenty years, we spend a lot of time、uh, using the science perspective to to discover Antarctica. But only this five years or ten years less, we using social cultural perspective to to more understand about Antarctica, what they give us. So that's why I'm a member of of Antarctica Social Science Group, and that is quite a lot of interesting topic is un, under undergo investigation as well. For example, the ice relationship with human and wilderness value, or、mm-hmm. some kind of this is quite interesting topic to to explore actually. Is there anybody actually living in Antarctica? This year, it's about two thousand scientists over winter. They don't have actually have people have a resident. Although some 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 country or some nation try to claim the first nation in Antarctica, but、uh, mm-hmm. again, they they don't have that long history for 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 Antarctica for living、uh, for for resident in Antarctica. So in 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 conclude conclusion is mean that. Antarctica, they don't have people to resident. They only have scientists to overwinter. But end up, they need to go back home anyway. So, yeah. And what 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 is the meaning of international space? It means that they don't have they don't have border. They don't have nationality. You and me is an equal in Antarctica. Over、mm-hmm. that,、um, same as okay. Another example is in the international space station.、Mm-hmm. So, so we work together as a goal. It means discover polar region. Or the space area that without any political、uh, barrier, without nationality border as well, but we work together to share the data, to share the resources together, to discover the unknown that we don't know for humankind. I mean, I don't know how many people are ever gonna make it to Antarctica, but how do you think? I mean, Antarctica as a place. Do you see it as a place of like you know, we can look at it as an example to create more like peace and harmony around the world, or do you think people need to go to Antarctica to experience that, or are you able to like take that and bring it out to the rest of the world yourself? Yeah, your topic. I mean, your question is quite interesting because before Antarctica become a international space for for humankind, actually, there's a lot of country trying to claim. The territory of Antarctica, for example, Australia,、mm. Australia, America, UK, Chile, Argentina as well. 
even Chile and Argentina nowadays they send their uh, military officer to the Antarctica scientist, sorry, Antarctica research station. Although they claim that they work as a scientist, but they are they have a, from a military background. So, so a lot of nations still want to claim uh, the Antarctica as, as uh, their territory. But because we signed the Antarctica Treaty, it means that all the claim is frozen. And we work in the Antarctica Treaty, we need to work together with our border, with our nationality, for more scientific discovery in the southern uh, in the southernmost uh, continent. So, yes, it's difficult to prevent people want to claim the resources, but at the same time, that Antarctica Treaty is a good example that we can work together without that much uh, argument or political conflict like this. So, so I think it's a good model for us to, to learn for the future development for, for humankind. I mean, as somebody that spends has spent a lot of time in Antarctica and, and you're involved in a variety of organizations there, is there uh, a future outlook for Antarctica? And I mean, maybe on a, on a, on a social, socio-cultural level, but also on an ecological level? Um, what does the future of Antarctica look like for people and for the environment itself? At least uh, uh, before 2041, Antarctica will keep like this. I mean, the Antarctica Treaty to enforce that they don't have that much development in Antarctica. For, for instance, you cannot build a hotel, you cannot build a restaurant in Antarctica, you cannot claim the territory. But after 2041, the future or the, the development of Antarctica is depends on our, on our next generation. It's not, it's not us anymore. So... How is the future look like in Antarctica? I cannot say because they don't have that much insight about this as well. But <laughs> I'm pretty sure that in short term still, we will preserve this as a peaceful use continent for, for us instead of become a war zone or become a mine, mining area as well. But although this mm. is quite happening as well, because for example, the fishing industry, for example, in China, Russia and Japan, they fish a lot, even in Norway, Norway as well. They fish a lot mm. in the Southern Ocean, which is another issue about the environmental fight for, for this area as well. So, so there's a lot of issue happening. But in the future, I still think that it's in the positive side, I can say, because the Antarctica Treaty that ensure we still preserve the fee value that I think is very important for Antarctica. Who, so I'm just curious, who exactly is in charge of all these treaties around Antarctica, is it is it a certain organization? No, or yes, depends how you say, because Antarctica Treaty is a, is a sort of agreement from different, from, sorry, from 12 countries to sign on during the polar, during the international geophysical year in mm-hmm. 1957 to 1958. So it's, what was the meaning of Antarctica Treaty? It means that because Antarctica is a continent without a native human population, and moreover that they try to minimize all the military, uh, military activity on this continent, and then moreover that actually is a byproduct from the Cold War. Because uh, after the Cold War, we see that uh, humans really can can really ruin the the almost, almost the edge of the of the nuclear war. That's why 
we don't want any nucleus weapon or nucleus development in Antarctica as well. So that's why this kind of Antarctic Treaty become developed. And which 12 nations decide on this um, agreement is Argentina, Australia, Belgium, Chile, France, Japan, New Zealand, Norway, South Africa, and UK and United States, and uh, Russia as well. So after this treaty cited and, and another, another nation, for example, Chinese, something like this, they, they join in this kind of agreement. Actually, if, if, you, if you don't join this agreement, you cannot build up your scientific station in Antarctica as well. So it's quite, like I say, it's just like the first law in Antarctica. Let's talk a little bit about your tourism work and your research. Nowadays, all the setting in polar tourist industry is a westernized setting. It means that mm. even the, the cuisine culture is from westernized. For example, we have Galantina, British Dress Up, and Captain is the, is the, is the top say, responsible person in the, in the ship as well, something like this. But like, they're missing another, another nation perspective in this content. For example, mm. because uh, about 90% of the, of the tourists to go to polar region is by the cruising ship. Only very limited of people using the aircraft or airborne way to visiting Antarctica or Arctic, but the rest is a cruising ship. So in this Western approach to go to explore a polar region, we'll confine some kind of another cultural interpretation in the polar region in this case. For example, maybe uh, Western, Eastern people, they can, um, using the Tai Chi perspective, or the cultural perspective to to read Antarctica, but but, but this kind of setting will we, we, I mean the the westernized setting maybe maybe limited this kind of interpretation interpretation in this area. So this is my study about mm-hmm. different culture of in the, different culture to interpretate of different kind of interpretation in the polar region. Okay, and I was looking through your paper, actually, you, put, you, you had a paper published recently. It was called The Growth of Chinese Tourism to Antarctica, a Profile of Their Connectedness to Nature, Motivations, and Perceptions. And I guess, was this r- related to uh, the work, that the research that you did with your thesis? Yeah, yeah, exactly. This I ended up published this paper. Uh, mm-hmm. First voice of my master thesis, and then after a few years, substantial data setting. And analysis, and I become this kind of paper for for the field, for the field to study because uh, I mean in there's a lot of conflict in between. For example, expedition leader in the ship they don't really understand what the eastern guests what they want or what they really uh, would like to have during the Antarctica cruising expedition experience. And this is not limited for the Chinese perspective, as well as, uh, for example, nowadays there's uh, getting more India, Middle East people to go to visiting Antarctica. So, although in the past the main tourists to visiting polar region is uh, America and United Kingdom Western people, but the profile, the pattern of the of the tourists will will transfer soon because of the social economic changing actually. Mm. 
So, yeah, one thing I was noticed in your study, you said, yeah, the Chinese tourism is increasing as the wealth is increasing, like, uh, like the upper class, like wealthy people are increasing in China. So do you notice, have you, have you worked, you've worked with all kinds of tourists, right? Not just Chinese tourists? Yes, yes. International, for sure. Yeah. So wh what would you say, but th they were the main focus of, of this publication. So what would you, what would you say were some of the, you know, strong differences or like big points that you, you gathered from this? Okay. First of all, tourism um, styles. Chinese, they always travel in a group, mm. westernized. The Western people, they like to do it individual. Mm -hmm. So this is a, ma a major difference because why this happening, we need to investigate the root of the cause. Because in Chinese, first of all, they always uh, do the last minute booking. But in Polar regions that uh, tourists uh, ported, you really cannot do a last minute booking because uh, you need to plan ahead what do you want to go and even the equipment wise and, and as well as uh, the logistic arrangement as well. So you really need to have at least one or two months planning before you go to Antarctica. So that's why to fit the market of Chinese for the last minute booking, so the tourist agency or, or the service provider in China, they make it much more, how to say, package, package product for, for the Chinese mm -hmm. so that they can pursue it easier. And moreover, that Chinese tourists like to live in their their Chinese contact very much. For example, they need Chinese food. They don't really speak in English. They need mm. translation. And moreover, they like to take picture. And this means that they always have a photographer to follow them. Mm. So this is really quite uh, a difference compared to uh, Western people that they travel individual. They enjoy more personal relationship between the clues or the nature, the landscape interaction as well. So, so there's, a, there's a difference for sure. Going back into your study a little bit, one thing I noticed is that you said something that was very interesting to me about Chinese visitors in Antarctica, about how it's, you concluded that Chinese visitors were not nearly as interested in like the human history of Antarctica as were people from like more Western countries. And I was just curious your take on that, why they were very interested to go see, I think you wrote in, the, they were very interested to go see someplace called the Great Wall, which I guess is a laboratory in Antarctica. But they weren't so interested to hear so much about like the explorers from UK and explorers from Norway and stuff like that. So any, I wanted to give your take on that. Yes, uh, as I said before, that Western have a long history to explore the polar region. For mm -hmm. example, you know who is Nelson, you know who is Amundsen, Scott uh, mm -hmm. and uh, Shackleton as well. Mm -hmm. But in uh, some nations that have no exploration or, or, or explorer in the polar region, they really don't know what is happening in Antarctica. For example, India or Africa, they don't really have an explorer in Antarctica. So if you tell them that Scott Amazon story, Polar Shackleton Shawaipo story, they really don't feel connection. Because uh, first of all, it's not my nation history. Second thing, it's not related surrounding parameter. It means that it's not related to us. So that's why it's very commonly to see that 
when Chinese go to Antarctica or Arctic region, they feel disconnected when the lecturer talk about history in the region. Because uh, first of all, it's not related to the nation, and moreover that this 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 name or this topic is not really really have a connection with Chinese culture, I can say. So that's why mm. that's why you can see the distinguished difference on this topic as well. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I was yeah, I was I was wondering if it had some kind of issue of nationalism or maybe even like national. Pre- I mean, is is there when, when these groups go to Antarctica? Is there really? I mean, do they mention like how Antarctica was originally explored and whatnot, or is it kind of just a like a black hole on the tour? I'm I'm just curious about how they how they sell that idea. Mm-hmm. Usually in the Western people, for example, there's one research about in UK, and they mm-hmm. asked the kid in kindergarten, I, I, I remember, to draw the outline of the, of the continent of Antarctica. Yeah. And usually the UK kindergarten uh, student, they can do it. But at the same time in Asia, they don't have any idea the, the outline of the continent of Antarctica. Mm. Is, is, which this, this research uh, indicate one issue is um, really not only the physical distance between Chinese to Antarctica or Western to Antarctica, as well as the cultural perspective of this isolation, uh, of this disconnection uh, of Antarctica. I, I really enjoyed this paper and I, I suggest other people go out and read it. I can drop a link for it because I also work in the tourism industry and I think a lot of people in the out or studies or outdoor education end up working in the tourist industry and deal with lots of people from all around the world. And I think one of the big things I know I have on my mind a lot and kind of try to avoid is this Disneyfication or or McDonaldization of the outdoors and of outdoor activities. And you mentioned this that you know particularly if 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 I got you right, particularly the influx of more Chinese tourists to Antarctica was increased in the Disneyfication of the like Antarctica tourism experience. But I, I kind of wondered, you know, is it, is it actually possible to not, is there, is it possible to not have a Disneyfied or McDonaldized experience in Antarctica? Because it seems to me very regimented what you have to do there. Like, can, is it, you know, is it possible for people to explore Antarctica independently? Isn't everybody on a tour? Not independently, impossible. Mm-hmm. Not only Antarctica and Arctic as well, you cannot go by yourself because uh, yeah. there's a polar region as well, a polar bear, as well as there's regulation or treaty that you need to follow a guide to ensure the quality mm-hmm. as well as the biosecurity as well. So it's not like this approach, but I can say that you're, you're, you're right. Because nowadays, I can see that in this polar tourist industry, they're using polar region as a backdrop. And people just take picture or enjoy short-term 10-day cruising, and then they disappear. They, mm. they, I mean, they leave their footprint, uh, especially the carbon footprint, and they're gone, which is, is not good for this reason. That's why I set up my own expedition company. It's called Polar Research and Expedition Cons- Consultancy. Mm-hmm. It means that we believe that using small, small cruising ship or small vessel with support, with support of the scientists to go there to do their own research. Although the tourists may be pay a little bit more financial costs, 
Mm-hmm. But at the same time that you sub, you you support the scientific research in the polar region, as well as because it's a small vessel, it means that you have more time set foot on the land. It means that you have more deep connection with, with the landscape. And I believe, believe that everybody travel to one um, destination, you you sort of form a relationship with the landscape. And when mm. you go back home, you will become a, a representative or ambassador of this week. Mm-hmm. Especially in Antarctica, some region that there's a so limited of people to visit that have have not been visited. So your mouth or your interpretate or your relationship to 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 talk or to share with another people is a, is a is a value that to create Antarcticalists or articles for for the humankind. So because of the big cruising ship usually have 200 people, it means that every time you go to landing or you go back to ship, it spend a lot of time. Yeah, but if you have uh, working in the small small cruising ship, for example, for 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 us, we always charter only two twenty people passengers vessel to go to to go to polar region, which means that you have just one one shark, you can arrive to land. And we have limited of people, less people to disturb you as well. So that's why I see that tourists we still need we still need tourists to to reach Antarctica or uh, polar region because without building the physical or substantial substantial relationship with Antarctica or Arctic region, you, you really cannot protect or build up the relationship with you or with for humankind as well. So that's why this this this. I can. I think this is a solution to to, to this decentralization of polar region. Yeah, because I was wondering about that when I was checking out your website earlier. I was wondering, yeah, how does this work? To you know, because that really isn't that at the end of the day. That really is the culture of Antarctica. Is people the most of the people that are down there that are not tourists are researchers, scientists people that are that is the culture so that would be probably the most one of the most authentic experiences a tourist could have in antarctica would be on a small ship with researchers yeah yes and and then at the same time the income coming from the tourists is actually being put towards a good cause which is to have more research about arctic areas yeah in the polar region areas yes Hmm. That's a, that's a that that clears up a lot for me because and, and that also kind of de McDonaldizes de Disneyfies the experience. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, because uh, for guiding perspective, can we connect individual? In this case, it means the tourist to the landscape is we add more value for 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 the tourist. In this case, it means that we use a scientific angle. Once you know, for for example, I can give you more 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 substantial example is when we walk on the glacier, if you're not mm. a glaciologist, you, you just just ice and they just move. But if for me as a as as a student, as a researcher to study glacier, we can see a lot of future. We can understand the history of the of the glacier. At the same time that we can tell you tell you that the future of the glacier, that how to shape the landform. So once you know the history or the future change of this landscape, and you sort of build up your connection with this landscape because uh, you're in the in the scene already. You're in the physical uh, space with this glacier as, as well as well, and you you sort of interpretate. You can interpretate 
this kind of uh, changing as well. So instead of just walking on the ice, but you really have a way to understand, to build the relationship, and more over that to carry this message back home to 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 connect to this kind of landscape. In this case, I mean polar region. So I believe that scientific way to discovery for tourists as a way for them to 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 build up the to to solid relationship to the polar region. And are you? I mean, when the tourists are going on your trips with your organization, are they actually participating in any kind of science or research? Is there any like citizen science going on too? Yes, for sure. Yeah, citizen science become a hot topic in polar region as well because because visiting Antarctica is so difficult and moreover the cost is very high, especially for scientists. Because I can say it's about one thousand. U.S. dollar per day for one scientist to spend the time in the Arctic region. Wow! Yeah, so so it's quite a lot of cost for 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 one individual just doing science uh, in the polar region. But with with tourist support and uh, over that with their help, for example, in my case, I do glacier research. For example, we need to collect some ice sample or using the drone to find the map as well. Which is quite low skill, low skill tasks, and which the tourists can can manage for sure. And over that, they will get more information, or they more connected to to what we're doing as well. So it's quite interesting interaction in between pure science with、um, tourists as well. Do you see now? Now that you've done a lot, you've done all kinds of tourism in the Arctic regions. How do you feel now about the more mass tourism as opposed to the kind of what I, I guess is that more like scientific, experiential tourism that you've started doing with your organization? How, how do you see a conflict of interest there? Yes, actually, you 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 are using a right、uh, vocabulary. It's been mass tourism because nowadays a lot of service provider focus on maximize their their profit. There's less small vessel in the polar region, and there's become more massive vessel to go to polar region, because a、uh, small vessel you really cannot that much profit, because actually the the fuel cost and the, everything is is similar, but if if you have two thousand passengers in one ship to go all the way to Antarctica and return, it's about ten times or even more, more profits compared to a small vessel, so. Now there's a trend that a lot of cruising ship company building a new ship and more massive ship, and inside the ship they have a musician, they have a salon, they have a casino, something like this, which is not necessary in Antarctica. Yeah. yeah. So so so, but I can sort of understand as well because if this massive giant cruising ship to go to polar region, which actually is a minimize. Or to reduce the cost of the tourists to go to polar region, because、uh, everybody share the same cost, so everything is cheaper. So this is not very good, healthy development. Although there's a lot of companies say that they are quite environmental friendly, and they using carbon、uh, neutralized strategy to to develop the to deliver the service. But same, I mean, imagine that. Two hundred people at the same time to land one spot for one hour, instead twenty、mm. people to land one spot for five hours, which 
bring more impact for the landscape. Yeah, of course, yeah. the bigger group. <laughs> yeah, but so, but unfortunately, we always focus on our human can always focus on profit or financial income. So that's why my company sort of survivors edge for for give another alternative for for the tourist or for the consumption consumer to have another way to 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 see Antarctica or Arctic region. What can you just give us like a little taste of what kind of research that you're doing on these trips with the tourists? Yes, uh, we we run this company for five years already. We mm-hmm. have several projects worked at before. For for instance, we go to Aswaba to collect some algae sample to mm-hmm. study the chemistry con- content in the sea ice level or in the high Arctic Ocean as well. So the two, I, I don't say the tourism. This is quite far away. I mean, the, the passengers or the the visitor uh, mm-hmm. will help us to collect some water sample. It's quite easy. Just just collect the water sample. And moreover, that we can do some microscope, isolate uh, which species of algae we collect as well. This one example. And second example is, for example, in polar region, there's a lot of wet algae happening on on the ice, on especially on the glacier, because it's, it's, it's not really algae on the sea; it's on the land. Because the fresh water provide their their habitat for this algae to grow on the land, which means that you need the warm temperature so that the glacier melts the fresh water so that they can survive. So. But we still don't know why the algae can grow inside Antarctica on the on the on the glacier as well. So we need to collect it. We need to take a t- picture to mark the GPS to see how they spread. So this very easy for for visitor to to just bring a GPS, take a picture, and upload to the database to give more detailed information for for the scientists to do this kind of uh, study. So these are two examples that we can give you now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm uh, and the people that you, how big are how big are these groups that you're taking usually? Usually, it's uh, twenty people. Okay, and are they do they tend to be? Yeah, I mean, I guess they tend to be kind of like a specific like type of person on these trips, not just tourists. It's people that are interested in science and on a deeper level. Yeah, I mean, they have a different kind of people. They have a retired people. Mm-hmm. They usually is uh, quite uh, financial, how to say, premium, uh, premium, premium customers. Yeah, I can say like this because uh, people have a little bit high education. People they really value what we're doing instead of, uh, mm-hmm. because because in Chinese market they always focus on the price. They really don't 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 pay attention for the quality of the service. So this is quite difficult for Asian market, but uh, still we need to work on it. Otherwise. Uh, we cannot ensure this scientific work happening for lower cost with the tourist support as well. Yeah, so the people that are coming on these trips with you in these smaller groups are people that are actually interested in the research that you're doing and want to be part of it. And more, and they they don't just they don't want just take a picture just happen there. They really want mm-hmm. to do something to act on this landscape as well. I think this is a main reason for them. 
Hey everybody, I hope you're enjoying the show. It's your host Josh, just taking a quick break to say thank you so much for listening. And I just want to let you know it's a great joy um, to bring you new perspectives on society and culture across environments and landscapes every single episode. If you like, you can support the show by please subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure you share wherever you can with whoever you can. And if you're really feeling it, you can even become a supporter of the show for as little $3 a month by visiting patreon.com slash Natural Pod. You can also make a one-time donation yeah, by visiting PayPal.me slash International uh, Super. Because, um, Thanks, my friends. And the climate really changing in the high Arctic dramatically, and moreover, that the temperature really, really rising a lot. That's why the whole ice cap in high Arctic is melting quite a lot, and this kind of situation is getting worse and worse. Yeah. So in in these in this research that you're doing now, you say the ice is melting much faster than previously expected. So have you found out in your research why this is happening and also what this, what the impact of this is, this faster melting ice? Yeah, first of all, because of the temperature increase, because of the climate change, mm-hmm. it's a very simple answer. and It's yeah. quite not scientific, actually. But, but, but more reason is uh, because of the mechanism of the ice feature. Because uh, when the temperature increase, the Participation is just just a liquid. It's not uh, snow anymore. Mm. Uh, snow have a have a have a function that to preserve the the energy. In this case, if you summertime, if you have snow on the top, it means that the melting is less. But if you pour a lot of water on the top of the ice, then they will melt more quicker. And moreover, that this kind of water will go inside the the bed uh, bed floor. It's meant under the glacier, under the ice, will become even move the whole pack of ice even faster to down down to Sulu. So it's meant that the speed of the glacier to surge is increased because of, the, of this kind of water appear. So so this uh, is a positive mechanism that to make whole glacier disappear so quick in the Arctic region. And more wow. moreover that once the ice dis- uh, disappear. The land will rebound, which which means that because the ice have a, have a weight, huh? if you remove the ice, and the the landscape will rebound. It means that they will rising. So you create a lot of landform that will change very fast. And moreover, that the another situation is because under the ice in the Arctic region, there's a lot of methane. Methane is a very high greenhouse gases. It means that more methane, the temperature will increase more. So once you remove the ice, with the landscape rebound, and the methane release more, so it's a more positive attribution, contribution to the to the temperature changing. So this is a quite alarming. We really need to do something to to. We cannot we cannot. I mean we cannot go back to the situation in the past for sure. We just can slow down the situation that so that we can find another solution to facing our challenging lifestyle in the future. Are, are you also, do you have any ideas about, you know, possible solutions? Is that is that in your research too? To be honest, it's so difficult to change back to the past. And moreover, that we, we, to be honest, we just observe only a small portion of time in uh, mm. Earth history. The Earth mm. always changing. I mean, the climate always changing. But we, there, there's a uh, significant, we can tell you that 
human factor already contribute this kind of uh, temperature increase substantially for sure. So in order to actually actually this year the the temperatures are a little bit slightly cool down because I think because of the COVID nineteen we don't travel that much. Mm. And as well as in art in in Hong Kong or for, for example in in China, they have more clear sky in the past as well. So, same as the uh, Antarctica Treaty, if we work together, we can slow down this process a little bit, and for for the future change for our next generation as well. So in, at that time, we don't really have that much solution for for this search of Antar- uh, for the sorry for this search of. Uh, glacier in high Arctic, we, we can just monitor, and then we can by monitor we can see how the future change in order to correspond this kind of future uh, prediction, and then how we facing our future life. You know, you say it's mo- it's melting a lot faster than we previously expected. So, can you tell like how much faster? What did we previously expect, and how much faster is it melting now? I don't have the, but it's so difficult to to. I mean, your question is difficult to answer because because the high Arctic region there's a lot of glacier melting at the same time there's some glacier is gaining. There's a lot of factor to to mm. this kind of. But in general, everything is is losing their mask. But I mean, the percentage or the figure is difficult to say because not all the glacier we have survey and moreover that. Now we still depends on the remote sensing. It means that we're using satellite-based observation, which is not mm. accurate because there's a lot of factor to to influence this kind of data. So it's so difficult to to answer your question. But in general, the 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 glacier in high Arctic region is decreasing. This is for sure. But how much, I cannot tell you. And how many percentage, I really cannot tell you as well. I mean, this is what is really wild about the whole climate change issue that we've been dealing with, you know, arguably since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, is that, you know, for as much as we think we know about it, it's really this fluid phenomenon. And it seems that every time a new report comes out, things are melting faster, things are changing faster, and in some way that we couldn't predict where it starts to seem like the most predictable thing is that it's going to be unpredictable. So, Hey, everybody brace yourself for, you know, an unpredictable future. It's as if the only thing we can really observe is, you know, we can just observe and react to the observations in the best way we know how, and then try to communicate these ideas to a global population in the most efficient way possible, which is, you know, proving to be challenging to say the least. I like to think that this podcast is a little contribution, a minute contribution. Shifting gears a little bit as we're winding up here, I would just like to ask you a little bit about what you're doing when you're not working. It sounds like you're just working all the time, but from what I understand, you also have some pretty high range activities that you're up to and you might even be working on some world records. Is that right? Yes, actually I spend... Usually, I spend half a year for for my work as well as Christian life, and the the rest of the half year just learning new knowledge and skill. Um, mm. Recently, I, I almost finished my project in the apps because I want to submit all the four thousand peak in the apps. There's eighty eighty two of them, and I still have seventeen left in total. So I aiming next year. 
I will become the first Asian to submit all the 4,082 pick in the apps. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> and, wow, that's really wild. So you'll be the first Asian person ever to climb all of the large Alpen peaks in Europe? Is that in Europe? Yeah, in Europe, in the apps. Because most of the, there's a lot of westernized climbers did it, but I don't know why the Asian did, they didn't do it. But actually, it's quite. I, I really like the climbing in the in the Alps because there's a long history about Alpinists in this region. And moreover, that I mean, you you really read through the history. Mm-hmm. We, we first, I mean, you, you can understand why the first European, usually from uh, from England. To climb all the four thousand peaks in the Alps because it's so gorgeous, and moreover that we really feel the the connection for the for the history of the Alps. Earlier, when we were talking about Hong Kong, you know, it's maybe not so common in in that in that in in like your home culture to be out exploring the outdoors. And I guess I mean, do you get what what what, are, what is your family and like friends back home? What do they think about? your explorations these days? Yes, I'm a little bit alien, alien in Hong Kong, uh, uh, uh-huh. actually. Yeah, although in the beginning, no one understands what I'm talking about, and they don't understand what I'm doing as well, because uh, especially, I mean, you work in the outdoor industry, you don't really earn your life, and moreover that the career path is not secured. And moreover that, uh, furthermore, you always travel far away, with always facing the substantial risk in front of you. So people really, in Asian culture, they don't understand very much because in Asian culture, it's a risk-free society. They don't like risk. And mm. <laughs> try to avoid, instead of uh, learn how to assess and and transfer and I- identify the risk. So it's difficult to, to, to make them understandable about what, to understand what I'm doing. But uh, once... I guess some achievement in this industry. People really understand about this, and moreover, that I believe that we living the 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 time we need to change a lot. We are not living in the stone age that we always focus on one direction mm-hmm. of development. And my life mission, I really want to reaching the frontier of discovery. It means mm-hmm. the first person to reaching the landscape or reaching the area that you may be the first person to make the first mistake. And you may be the first person to to make to, to ask the first question that no one asked this before. And I really want to become the, this, this first person to reach this frontier. So, although, yeah, in my Hong Kong culture, they limit what I want to do. But at the same time that you really need some people to 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 leave this this comfort zone, to leave, to 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 cross this city wall, I can say, mm-hmm. to to expand the unknown of the of the parameter of our humankind. So so this is motivate me that I'm not limited by by the traditional baggage, I can say, in order to pursue my my mission to discover this to reach this frontier. Wow, that's incredible, man. I mean, to me, you, you sound like actually from where you came from, quite the rebel, quite the quite the the pioneer, really. I mean, you came from just like an island nation, basically, that 
you know, has its limitations, has its definite borders. And I mean, you can't get off of it unless you're going to swim or I guess like take a train or something like that. And really gone to the far, far, almost the furthest reaches of the world, as you say, researching the frontiers of discovery. And I guess, I don't know, from, from talking to you today, I would feel like you'd be a really great person to have there on the frontier of discovery. Cause I feel like you would hopefully, like you said, it's, you know, Every, everybody has the opportunity to be that first person, maybe by on purpose or, or even by accident. And you also have the opportunity to make an accident or make a mistake there. So I feel like you would handle the frontier with, with care. Where is that? I mean, is that a certain place for you, the frontier of discovery? Or I mean, what's, what's next for Wilson? Where, where, are you, where are you going? Yes, I mean, this frontier of discovery is not only physical space, mm-hmm. even my research in, in searching glacier in the high Arctic is a lot of unknown as well, because the, the glacier searching is not it's, it's very rare. It's only in the high Arctic and only very limited of space we can do it. Uh, we, we can observe this situation. For example, in Greenland, uh, Iceland, uh, Svalbard, and Yukon, Yukon, and Alaska. <clears throat> so my next project will study this phenomenon will be in Yukon, Canadian, Glacier area. Mm-hmm. So I move on this, this topic to, to another territory. And at the same time that I would, actually I was selected by one commercial space organization, it's called POSIM. Um, mm-hmm. Suppose I have a training in Kennedy Space Center in Florida. In wow, April. that's where I'm from. <laughs> Is it? Wow. Yeah. You see, I'm from launching actually. Then. So you're going to be training. Oh, oh wow. Okay. So you're going to be training at the Ken. So are you, are you, are you going to space, Wilson? Is that where you're going? Yes. This hopefully is my le- next phase of discovery to leave this planet a little bit to to exam. Home is meaningless without journey, and I really want to see outside home perspective and what is the meaning of earth for us when we leave the earth that's why i try to equip myself enter to the space exploration and i believe that uh, the commercial way is a new generation of of space industry that's why i participate in this program and they select me and suppose i go there I may go to Florida to training in April, but because of the COVID-19, and they have been postponed. And hopefully this, I mean, this virus gone very soon and I can start my training again. Wow, that is amazing. So maybe in some years we'll see you f- flying around in space. I don't know, taking taking tourists up to space or something like that to do scientific experiments. Who knows? Yeah, but my... My strategy is really using my glaciological knowledge uh, mm-hmm. to help to contribute to set up the first humankind manned lunar base in the moon. Because uh, within two years, the first cargo will deliver to the moon very soon. And uh, in the moon, they do have a lot of uh, ice, but in ice form. So I believe that they need to send the first geologists, people or scientists to, to the moon because you only have a scientific perspective you can see the value of the landscape without this kind of training or, or, or solid knowledge it's difficult to to discover the the ice very well in the in the in the moon 
So that's why I get ready for myself, and hopefully next 10 years, I can set foot on the moon and set up the first humankind base in the moon. And do you do you think that there's anything particular you want to discover or focus on up in space? Or are you going to simply just go up there to try to help build this station? Or is there something you're looking forward to discover? Yes, I really want to to focus on the ice form on the on the mask or on the moon. Because element for us to survive, to create energy, even to have agents to 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 build up all, all the chemical reaction. So so that's why I really want to utilize my glaciological no glacial skill or knowledge in the space industry. Wow, man! I really hope you get there. I from everything you've you've told me and, and knowing you throughout the years, I I think you you're gonna make it for sure. Sounds incredible. Setting up the first human base on the moon. We're going to have to talk to you again. Maybe, maybe we can do a podcast from space sometime while you're up there. Yeah, there's a 4G fair soon in, in the moon. I'm ready. I'm ready. I don't, know, I don't know who will get to do it first. Maybe we can do the first podcast from space. That would be pretty amazing. <laughs> Wow. Well, that's incredible. I, I feel like we've gone to space on this pod, on, on this episode today. What, what would you like to see happen in the future? I mean, you seem very concerned and at the same time, very fascinated about the where the world is going. So what's on the frontier of time here? I think we are facing a very challenging time at, that mom- at, at this moment, because I predict that COVID-19 will last for at least one or even two years longer because the delivery of vaccine, everything is take a long time. And moreover, that even everything, I mean, the, the virus is gone, our economic recession is coming as well, mm-hmm. which means that a lot of people will get jobless. We're facing a very challenging situation. That's why... You can see that nowadays in everywhere there's some political situation. For example, in China, in Hong Kong, in Middle East, even in Azerbaijan, in Georgia as well. There's a big issue everywhere. <clears throat> but I believe that humankind is an intelligent species. We always mm-hmm. lead this kind of challenge or this darkness in order to to build up the hope to to, to train to train us or to equip ourselves to face a bigger challenge in the future. So we need this kind of challenge to in order to make us stronger. So I believe that hope is a very fundamental or powerful agent for us we need to hold on in order to make us to to get me get us stronger for facing the, the brightest future. So so yes and downside, I mean, in soft term side, we, we were facing a lot of uh, challenging moments. But <clears throat> in the future, we will see after go over, after overcome this kind of challenging moment, we were facing a very bright future, especially in the space exploration industry. Yeah. All right. Well, Wilson, I don't want to keep you too much longer. It's been super interesting talking to you today i just want to close up with with a question that i think i think is well deserved you are a person that has achieved quite a lot in in a small amount of time and i mean 
you've achieved a lot of goals and dreams and you continue to push on forward. So, I mean, do you have any, any, any words of wisdom, like what drives you? And I don't know, what, what, what would you hope for other people? What can they can do to achieve their dreams too? Yes. And uh, for some advice, actually, I quite uh, like this statement from one of my German professor in Tios. We always say that uh, when we are young, we need to get more experience because this kind of experience will become our wisdom when we get older. Mm. When we when, when we depart, we we no longer to live in this earth, on this earth, and this kind of wisdom will become our civilization for humankind. So when you're young, although now it's difficult to travel or difficult to to explore a little bit. But still, you need to get more experience. And there's no bad or good experience. You only have experience. So try more new things to learn more about who you are. Because I believe that the best te teacher we have is yourself. It's not the teacher in university. It's not the teacher in your school. The better you know yourself, the better chance you develop your, your skill or explore the physical world in better way. So experience more, to know more self, know more yourself, to get more wisdom in the, in the future, and to make our species to sustain in the universal. Wise words, wise words. And Wilson, before we go, is there anything else you'd like to leave us with today about what's coming up next for you or how we can get in contact with you? In next year, I have two book chapter will be published. One oh, yeah. called Antarctica. It means that what is the meaning of Antarctica for everybody? And I will focus on my deep field experience in Antarctica. Another mm. another book chapter is very soon. It's coming very soon. It's cooperate with the University of Arctic. It's about mm. emotional labor of guiding Antarctica adventure tourists for Asian consum consumer. Which, which is quite interesting if you really want to understand how another nation to to interpret Arctic or Arctic adventure. And uh, this is quite good piece of work to read on. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I look forward to reading that once it gets published and then maybe uh, having you back on to talk to you more specifically about those articles. Yes. Yes. Good. Excellent. Hey, Wilson, thank you so much for talking with me today. This is a super interesting conversation. I definitely hope we get to talk again when you have uh, some more adventures and more awesome research to report on yeah thank you very much tranquility base here the eagle has landed roger twang tranquility we copy you on the ground you got a bunch of guys about to turn blue we're breathing again thanks a lot Wow. I don't know about y'all, but I feel like I really went to the moon on this episode. Now that we're coming down, I'd like to give a big thanks to Wilson for taking the time to come by the virtual studio and share his incredible story thus far. And of course, you can always make contact with Wilson through Instagram at Polar Wilson. That's at P-O-L-A-R Wilson, W-I-L-S-O-N. And through his website, precon.com that's for the polar research and expedition consultancy that he is running but it ain't over yet not only is wilson dedicating his life to solve issues that are going to hopefully positively impact each and every one of our lives and for generations to come 
but he manages to do it with great determination and passion in a, if you believe it, you can do it kind of way, but not as if your dreams will magically appear if you want them enough, but that if you want something enough, or perhaps you feel like you have a mission in life, then you can find a way as Wilson has shown us. Wilson challenged cultural norms and went against the grain of the high demand capitalistic pressure cooker that he grew up in. A societal norm of stay in line, follow the crowd and achieve more, better and as fast as possible, which I think far too many of us can identify with on some level or another. Isn't it good to know that he's not done? He's just doing it right now, somewhere out there researching right now, chipping away at a mountaintop somewhere along the dusty trail of life, or depending on when you're listening, maybe somewhere out there on a star dusted trail along the Milky Way. Isn't it good to know Wilson's out there looking out for us? And maybe you are too. If so, let me know. I'd love to talk about it with you on the show. And that's it, everybody. These are the transnatural perspectives for this year. I look forward to talking with you again real soon. And between now and then, feel free to give me a shout. Feel free to reach out, send me an email, send me a message. Uh, door is always open. Look forward to hearing from you, everybody. Please don't forget to subscribe, share, and be well with your time. Until next time, get outside. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night. Good luck, a Merry Christmas, all of you on the good earth. Roger, zero. Two.